So um, over the last couple of years, the idea of distance uh, became kind of a front and center conversation for us, right? Like what's necessary for us to keep ourselves safe from one another? Like how far away, how much space, how much distance do we need to keep between us and other people? And what became clear early on in the pandemic, right, was that, um, you know, we're all going to decide for ourselves, basically, right? right? It doesn't matter what the information is because information can be manipulated. It doesn't matter what the data is because that can be manipulated. It doesn't matter what medical science says one way or the other. And sure, we argued over that stuff and people are still arguing over all that stuff. But mostly people looked around and based based on their personal experiences and their comfort levels and their evaluations, right? We decided for ourselves. And that's not really all that bad, right? It's kind of good, actually. It's not really all that surprising either because it's what we all do every day in every interaction in every relationship, right? It doesn't matter what anybody else says or what may or may not be objectively true about people and about relationships. We decide for ourselves what the emotional distance, what the relational distance is gonna be between us and other people. And because we've all misjudged a situation, right? You, you thought you knew them. They seemed so normal and put together at work, but then you hung out with them and they were a little crazier than you thought, right? Like their car looked like a homeless family lived in it, or they had 37 cats or an action figure collection, or they make their own reusable toilet paper, whatever that is. Uh, or, or they only wanted to talk about government conspiracies and it was all aliens this and chemtrails that, and you just kept waiting for the tinfoil hats, right? Uh, or, or maybe it was more serious, right? You, you, you misjudged them in, in a more serious way, right? Where you thought you could trust them, but it turned out, it turned out that you couldn't and, and they betrayed you. See, the truth is we're all reading and reacting to one another, right? Responding emotionally and relationally based on our own personal experiences, our own comfort levels, our own evaluations, which makes perfect sense, except when it doesn't. Because the problem is, of course, is that we've all misjudged people the other way too, right? Where we sized them up, we made assumptions about them, and we kept our distance, but it turned out over time we were wrong. They were trustworthy. They were pretty awesome. They were somebody we clicked with, and they ended up becoming our best friend or our husband or our wife, in spite of all of the ways that we initially judged them. Like, Have you ever loved someone who seemed like they were constantly doing their best to make it really hard to love them and get close to them? Or have you ever been loved by someone even though you were doing your best to make it really hard for them to love you and get close to you? So there, there's been kind of one big idea at the heart of this series called Safe Distance that we've been in all month. Uh, and if you've been here, this is a little bit of review, but um, I, I, if you haven't been around, definitely go back and check out the, the, the previous weeks. But, but here's the idea, is that we all have a specific way that we go about creating connections and keeping closeness with other people. And, and the way that we do that is just known as our attachment style. And, and the reason that's important for us in church, the reason why that matters for us among other things, is because the way that we attach to people is the way that we attach to God. And so there are four basic attachment styles. One of them is secure, and the other three are known as insecure. And we haven't spent a lot of time in this series talking about the secure attachments because the overwhelming majority of us fall into one of the three, somewhere in the spectrum of the three insecure styles. 
And part of the reason that it might be helpful for you to go back and listen to the last couple of weeks if you haven't been here is because one of the things that this series has done for me is it's actually helped me not only identify like what's true about me, but what's also what's true about the people that I love. And so that I can actually have a little bit more compassion and understanding for why they do the things they do in the relationships that I have with them. And so a couple of weeks ago, we started with the idea of people that are known as having a sensitive or an anxious attachment style. And it doesn't mean that they're necessarily hyper emotional or sensitive emotionally, even though that could be true. It means that they have a lot of anxiety. So they're constantly reading and reacting people so they can make sure that everything's okay, right? They're very sensitive. They're sensing of, of what's going on. And then last week we talked about this idea of being shut down or avoidant, that you just kind of shut off your emotions, that you detach from situations. Well, today we're going to end this whole conversation talking about the last attachment style known as the scattered or the shame-filled attachment. Now, it doesn't mean that you are scattered or disorganized or scatterbrained. It, it means that, that, that there's a kind of frenetic, almost... Um, erratic way in which you connect with people. See, while none of us fit real nice and neatly into any one category or box, the scattered attachment style kind of actually blends a little bit of the sensitive and a little bit of the shutdown together. And, and no matter which of these you end up being and which of this actually applies to you, I want you to know it doesn't actually define you because a lot of what I'm describing each week in this series, right, with each of these attachment styles is really what it looks like when we're acting out of our most unhealthiest selves. Because there's people that, that we, we actually have offered this little quiz and if, if you didn't get a chance to take it, we, we have some of those left. You can take it and kind of figure out but every single week when I've been talking about this, there's people that come up to me and is like, hey, I took the quiz and this was my style, but that, that's not me. Like, I don't do that. And it's like, yeah, well, it's like, it's not a one size fits all. It's not universal. Like, like they're like, this other part fit me. You know, somebody told me like all the good, like all the bad stuff was true of me, but all the stuff that you said was good about it, none of that fit me. And I, was, I don't know what that says about me. And I'm like, it means you're a bad person. No, I just say it. I didn't say that. <clears throat> but this series is really just meant to, give us a starting point so that together we can begin to move forward with one another and in our relationship with God. So what is the scattered attachment? What, what does that look like? Have you ever met someone and you just out of the blue unexpectedly hit it off with them? Like the womance or the bromance was really strong right from the jump. Right? And you just clicked with them and they're sarcastic in all the same ways you are and you crack jokes and they get them. You make movie references that are obscure and they know it and you're just like... Did we just become best friends, right? Like you're just, oh my gosh. And so you hang out a few more times and spend more and more time together and you really like them and they seem to really like you and you let your guard down faster than you normally would with somebody. And that kind of gives you, starts to give you a little bit of anxiety, right? Because all of a sudden, like you get into your own head a little bit because you realize like, like you don't really even know this person and they certainly don't know you. I mean, they don't know about your 37 cats or your action figure collection or that you make your own reusable toilet paper, most of all, they don't really know the important stuff about you that makes you you. And so you pump the brakes a little bit and back off a little bit, not because they did something wrong, but because people are unpredictable, right? I mean, why does anybody end up liking anyone anyway? Are they just being nice and pretending to like you? Because you've experienced that. You've been down that road before. And if not, if they actually like you, you just think like, I mean, it makes me kind of question your judgment that you accepted me as quickly as you did. Or maybe you're not the one that's always second guessing everything. Maybe you're not the one that's always in your head. Maybe it's somebody in your life. Like for me, that person's my wife. When my wife and I go out 
with friends and we meet a new couple and we go out and spend time with them and, and we have individual friends, but we don't have a lot of like couple friends. And so we're always kind of looking out and like, hey, do you want to like, in fact, last, last year uh, in the fall, we went to like the, the pumpkin patch with Charlie and Lisette who were up here leading a few minutes ago. And like, we were just hanging out and we we're having a great time. And I made it super awkward because I was like, um, we don't really have a lot of couple friends. Do you guys want to be our friends? And they're like, ha, 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 ha. And they're just like, well, we don't know if this is weird. Um, it was, um, but we've been out with couples and we'll get in the car and Hansi's like, why you just, you talked way too much. Why did you talk that much? Why did you share that story? They're going to think we're freaking crazy. We want these people to like us. And I'm like, I know, but you just got to put it all out there, right? Like right at the, right at the beginning. Okay, so you take all those little head games, all those insecurities that we all have, that we've all experienced at different times, multiply it by like 100 and apply it to everything and everyone, and now you're getting the person who has that scattered attachment. See, at the core of a scattered attachment is the belief that closeness with other people could only be possible if you were a better person than you could ever be, than it's possible for you to ever be. And so you work tirelessly to keep other people from discovering the real you, because if they discover the real you, they will automatically reject you. Now, obviously that's not true, but you believe it's true. See, for, for people who have this attachment style, you want to be close to, to, you know, to, to other people, right? But in your core, you feel like you're not worthy of closeness. So every relationship is this dance between pulling people close and then all of a sudden kind of getting a panic and getting nervous and then pushing them away. And you're constantly questioning what other people are saying and doing, but at the same time, you see yourself as the one that's flawed and damaged and broken beyond repair at your core. People with this attachment style believe that pretty much everyone is fake and that closeness is basically mostly a myth. And to the extent that it's not, it just kind of leaves you feeling terrible because eventually they're going to end up rejecting you and hurting you in the end anyway. Now, if that feels very fatalistic, it's because it is. Right? And if some of, those seem, some of those things make it seem like they, that would make it hard for if you're in a relationship with somebody like this, that for, for you to know where you stand with them, it's because it does. But to be fair, they're not always sure where you stand with them either or where they stand with themselves. Now, just like the other attachments that we've talked about the last couple of weeks, people that have a scattered attachment, attachment style, they actually have some really incredible strengths that they've honed because of the way that they see and experience the world. Like for instance, I, I, and I, I have firsthand experience with this because my wife has this attachment style. But people, people with a scattered attachment style, they often grow calmer and more competent as the chaos around them increases. So for instance, like um, all of our kids are adopted and when we were adopting our daughter, when she was a baby, um, right within like a few days of when we were gonna finalize that adoption, her birth father came back in and said, if we didn't give him, basically said, if we didn't give him $10,000 or I'm sorry, $50,000 that he was going to take us to court to get custody of her back. And so um, we ended up in this like court hearing. It was, it was a mess. And so it was very emotionally um, charged and very emotional. And, and, and I was like a 
a rock through the whole thing and my wife was a mess until the day that we got there. And the day that we got there, there was all this craziness and, and then we saw him for the first time and his attorneys and all this shady stuff was happening. And as all of that chaos started increasing that day, my wife got really calm and she just was focused. And she was, and, and I was just like over in the corner, like crying, like about to puke in the garbage can and just snotting all over the place. I mean, it was a, it was a mess. And part of the reason why that they, they get more like focused and competent in, when chaos increases is because they're, they're, they're used to it. They're used to things feeling unstable. The problem, the problem that I, I've experienced in my life is that tools that are learned in danger and chaos often require danger and chaos to be useful. And so uh, if you've ever been around somebody who seems like just when things get really calm in their life, they stir stuff up. Well, this is why. It's because that's what they're used to. That's what they're comfortable with. They need the chaos. They need the craziness. They need everything sort of unstable because the, all the tools that they have to manage their life work best when things are crazy. And so they're drawn to people who are a little bit more crazy. They're drawn to people who stir up drama. They're drawn to people and connect with people who actually have that same experience. Yeah, one of the other strengths they have is that they can see past facades and sniff out a fake really, really well. My wife can see a fake coming a mile away and I'm the opposite like I trust everyone believe everybody I'm like no that that guy is legit I've hung out with that dude and then sure enough he's not what he said he was they also have a natural ability to identify and engage with people who are wounded and marginalized some of the people that I've known that fit into this category they are drawn their life's mission is people who are broken and messed up and foster care, and foster system, and uh, kid, people that are victims of abuse. A lot of times, people who get involved in those experiences, it's not just because they experience that themselves, it's because this is part of their story. Finally, they're often able to transform, transform their pain and the turmoil of their life into something relatable and helpful and useful to other people. See, one of the things I think we forget when we read the stories of the scriptures is the fact that the people that we're reading about were actually real people. So we look at the heroic and miraculous things that they did, and we tend to think, well, they weren't like us. Well, one of the biggest characters in the scriptures, in all of the scriptures, was an Old Testament prophet. His name was Elijah. And in fact, in the Jewish mind, the two most important people in the story of their faith were Moses, you probably heard of him, and this prophet named Elijah. So much so that even when Jesus was here, when Jesus came, uh, he took his three closest followers, went up on a mountain, and, and he decided to pull back the curtain a little bit on his humanity so they could actually get a peek into this, was, this wasn't just something that he was talking about. He was actually God. And so he's up there and this cloud comes over them and, and Moses and Elijah appear to Jesus and begin to talk, appear, in that, appear with Jesus and begin to talk with Jesus. See, because Moses represented the Exodus and all the laws and all the rules that were a part of their faith. Elijah represented all the prophets and everything that God had ever said to them and his power to come through for them in miraculous ways. So it, it just doesn't get bigger than Elijah and Moses. But still, there's this observation that James makes in the New Testament, James chapter 5, verse 17. He says this, Elijah was human like us. Yet when he prayed that it wouldn't rain, no, no rain fell on the ground for three and a half years. See, we, we always want to skip over that first part because that second part is so spectacular, right? But it just doesn't seem real. I mean, praying for God to hold back the rain and 
as a result of that prayer, you caused a three and a half year drought. I mean, that's, that is baller. Like that is incredible. We just don't have a, we don't have a category for that, for that. But James starts out by saying, but he was a human being like us with hopes and fears, with sin and doubt, with dysfunction and baggage. And it wasn't just Elijah, it was the same as true for Moses. In fact, every hero in the Bible was a human being like us with emotional baggage and relational dysfunction. So we, we look at somebody like Moses and, and oftentimes when we read his story or we think about what he did, he was just, he's just a story or a character to us, almost like a superhero. We may know some of the bad stuff that happened, some of that, you know, but, but a lot of that stuff just kind of adds to his legend, right? But when you read, actually read his story, there's a lot of it where it's just all over the place. And it really seems like, I think it's possible, like he had a scattered attachment style. And why wouldn't he? Let me give you a little backstory, and then we're going to read some of his story, right? He was born to a people who were enslaved. Worse than that, when he was born, he was born during a time where Pharaoh had ordered that all of the Jewish baby boys that were being born should be thrown in the Nile and drowned in the Nile to control the population of the Jews. Now, think about what we know of pregnant mothers living under extreme stress and trauma and how that affects the baby in utero, right? And so that's only the beginning, though. Once he was born, he had to be hidden, more trauma. In order to save his life, his mom eventually had to abandon him. And so she places him in a basket, sends him floating down the river. Pharaoh's daughter finds him and adopts him, which is honestly, all of this is way better than death, but it's all just trauma. He grows up in the palace, but everybody knows he's a Hebrew and they hate Hebrews. He's simultaneously accepted and rejected in every room that he walks into. He's never really seen as one of them. On top of that, his own people see him as a traitor. He has no idea where he belongs or where he fits. And so he spends his life really always kind of guarded, kind of by himself, never lets anyone get too close because if you let the wrong person in, it's not just rejection, it's your whole identity, right? And maybe even your life that's at stake. I think sometimes we look back on his story and maybe you know a little bit of it and maybe you know all of the incredible miracles he performed, but we look back with the benefit of hindsight and we, you know, we read the story and we know that the things that God said to him and ultimately did through him and we think, of course God picked him. Like he was perfect. He was the perfect candidate. He had a foot in both worlds. He was both Egyptian and he was Jewish. And that is true, but it's also not exactly how Moses experienced it. For him, having a foot in both worlds meant that he didn't fit in either world. So no wonder as he grows up and gets into adulthood, his life and relationships are often filled with chaos. No wonder he potentially has this scattered, sort of emotionally unpredictable unpredictability in his, in his relationships. Because that's what happens to us is we become emotionally and relationally erratic and unpredictable when we crave connection, the connection that we were made for, but believe that we're too unlovable to let anybody get close, or it's just not safe to let anybody get close. We can't and don't want to be alone, but also believe we're too unlovable to let anybody get to know the real us, which makes trying to connect with us feel crazy and unpredictable and chaotic, and it is but it's even more crazy and unpredictable and chaotic for the people who experience this. Now, maybe the most erratic thing Moses did was he committed murder. In Exodus chapter two, it says this. 
Many years later, this is talking about after he was abandoned by his mom and Pharaoh's daughter adopted him. Many years later, when Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews, and he saw how hard they were forced to work. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. After looking, and this is a crime of passion, after looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. And I know we've said that, I know I've said this before, but we've all watched enough true crime to know that's not going to work. You can't just bury the body in the sand right where you killed the guy. That feels like a lot of work. Does this like, you think this through? Like, why is there a big mound of sand right there? Moses, don't look in there, whatever you do. This is the next day. Moses went out to visit his people again. He saw two Hebrew men fighting. Why are you beating up your friend? Moses said to the one who had started the fight. The man replied, who appointed you to be our prince and our judge? Are you gonna kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Then Moses was afraid, thinking everyone knows what I did. So this is not a great start, right? This is not, this is not how you would go like, let's tell the story of one of the greatest biblical heroes. Let's write the story. All right, let's start him off. He's gonna murder someone. That's not how you would do it, right? He kills the guy and he freaks out and he runs away. Eventually he does become this great spiritual leader, but even through all of that, he was still full of all of these like extremes and contradictions in all of his relationships with people and certainly in his relationship with God. Like for instance, here's what I mean. So you, you may have heard the story of him with a burning bush, right? But if you go back and read that story, like he meets God in the desert and he says, Within the span of just a couple of breaths, he says, here am I, like, I'm right here, I'm the one. But then immediately it's like, don't send me. Here I am, I'm not your guy, right? And his life is spent either living alone in obscurity or publicly like leading an entire nation. He goes from calmly kind of outlining plans and details to yelling at people and smashing things. He's either accessible to anyone and everyone or he disappears for 40 days at a time on a mountain He says to God at one point, like, who am I that you would choose me? But then he spends most of his time trying to do everything that God assigned him to do by himself, not ask anybody for help. He defends the people to God when God's really upset and kind of angry at people and the things that they had done. And he's like angry at God for being angry at the people. And but then as soon as he's done talking to God about that, he turns around and yells at the people because he's angry at the people too. He complains to God, like, why did you lead us here to die? Did you just bring us out here to die? And also he's like, I'm not moving unless you lead and you go with us. Like, I'm gonna go wherever you go, but why'd you bring us here? Now you have to admit, like when you begin to read some of the stories and you process some of that information about what he was like, he does seem a whole lot more human than just the larger than life, like Old Testament, let my people go deliverer. I don't know about you, but it actually makes me feel a lot better because God handpicked Moses on purpose, knowing all of that stuff about him, knowing all of his weaknesses and all of his baggage. See, a lot of us believe or, or at least feel that although God may love you, he really doesn't like you all that much. I mean, he did kind of promise to love everyone, which includes you. He, God so loved the world and you live in the world and you're part of it. So he's sort of obligated to love you. Plus there's this thing that he wants to get done and you're the only one around and available and so he'll settle for using you, but he's not really happy about it. It's like the last kid picked for, you know, for teams on the playground. You ever have that? Or like they're picking teams and it's getting down and you're like, and it gets down to you. And then when it's that team's turn to pick, they don't even pick you. They're like, you can have them. You're just like, I was worse than having nobody. 
But a, a lot of the way that we talk about God and our beliefs in church kind of reinforce these ideas. I mean, it gets dressed up in all these theological words and all these theological frameworks so that you know, we don't actually say it this way, but the message that people get or the message that we sort of end up settling on is that you should feel terrible about yourself because God feels terrible about you. And he really just wishes that you were like a lot more holy. And since you're not, you're kind of a constant disappointment to him. And when he looks at you, all he sees are all the mistakes and all the flaws and all the mess that you're constantly creating from your life. And there's just no way that you could overstate just how frustrated he is with you for not trying harder and making more progress. After all, God doesn't love me the way I am. He loves me in spite of who I am because I'm the worst. And so the way that I can get God to accept me is by joining him and hating the thing that he hates the most, which is pretty much most of me. Because if, if he can see how bad I feel and how ashamed I feel, maybe he'll take pity on me and come close to me. And we use scriptures like Romans chapter three, verse 10, which says no one is righteous, not even one. We use that as, you know, we use scriptures like that as proof. The thing is, is that, that, that scripture is actually true. But verses like this often get used to prove that, that underneath your bad behavior, right? Underneath your condition is a worse person who's not worthy of love. But I have to tell you something that you already know but may have forgotten, that there is a difference. There's a distinction between guilt and shame. Guilt is about doing. Shame is about being. Guilt says, I made a mistake. Shame says, I am a mistake. Guilt is about condition. Shame is about essence and core. See, just because you have cancer doesn't mean you are cancer. Just because you've spent time at your life living at the dump doesn't mean that you're trash or you're garbage. And if we're all honest for a moment, we've all spent time in our lives living at the dump because we do all kinds of stuff with all kinds of people in substances and food and drink to numb the pain, to drown out the noise, to make us forget, right? We, we, we all spend time at the dump. Doesn't mean that you're garbage. See, God so loved you that he gave himself for you. Jesus gives us freedom from the feelings and consequences of our guilt. Shame should never, ever even enter the equation. I was thinking about it this week and I thought of it this way. I think we've way undersold the good news of God or the gospel. Yes, Jesus died to save you. And that would be enough if that's all there was to it, right? But it's not because as earth shattering and eternity changing as that is, and it is, it's actually better than that. Yes, Jesus loves you and he died to save you, but also God likes you. And he will like you, whether you accept him or change for him or want to be close to him or not. And he offers us salvation and relationship, salvation and connection. I actually love what Psalm 18 verse 19 says. It says this. It says, he, speaking of God, he, lead, he led me to a place of safety. He rescued me because he delights in me. Now think about that for a second. Yes, he rescued you, but it wasn't out of obligation. It wasn't out of pity. 
It wasn't out of any of that. It was out of delight because he delights in you. See, here's the truth. God's default feeling towards you isn't disgust. It isn't even just disappointment, like a low-grade disappointment. God's default towards you is delight. Just let that sink in for a moment. Because delight is the feeling like your best friend gives you, right? Or, or a parent has for a child or, or, or the feeling that two lovers have with one another, right? You, you delight in them just because they're them. You're drawn to them and you find them compelling, not because they're perfect, but because of who they are, because you can fully be yourself when you're with them. I wonder, is that how you think of God as your friend? Creator, Lord, Savior, King, yes, of course. He's all of those things. But friendship, when you read the scriptures at least, friendship seems to be where he begins with us. As you go all the way back to the very beginning in the garden in Genesis chapter 1, 1 and 2 and 3, it says that Adam and Eve took walks with God in the evening and they talked with him as friends. Yeah, but that was before sin. All right, I got you. Because just a few chapters later, after sin, it tells us that this guy named Enoch, he became such a close friend of God that, that God was like, man, let's permanently hang out. And it just says God took him. He was no more. He didn't die. We don't know what happened. He just disappeared with God. You flip over another few chapters, and this guy named Abraham, he's actually called the friend of God. Then Jesus says this to his disciples in John chapter 15. He says, I don't call you servants. Servant doesn't know what his master is doing. Now I call you friends because I have made known to you everything I heard from my father. He's like, all of the secret stuff like I know from God, all the like inside scoop, all the, like you guys are the one, you're my friends. See, it's not incidental. It's not something we can just dismiss out of hand. It's not a small thing that we're called the friends of God or that Jesus had a reputation for being a friend of sinners. Maybe the best part of that is that it wasn't a ploy or some ulterior motive on Jesus' part to sort of manipulate people into changing or following him. He genuinely liked people with their flaws and faults and all. I mean, he spent time with tax collectors and prostitutes, and they weren't like former, reformed, retired. No, these were active, present-day like embezzlers and cheaters and working girls. And even knowing all of that, knowing what they came from doing before hanging out with him and what they were likely going to go do after hanging out with him, he said very little to them about it. And it wasn't because he necessarily approved of what they were doing. He just didn't make agreeing with him on everything and living every aspect of their lives like his way, a condition of his friendship. What's crazy is a lot of them did change. A lot of them did begin living his way. Why? Romans chapter two, verse four, because it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, because in the face of that overwhelming love and acceptance and friendship from our creator, everybody responds with, I'm gonna get healthier and better. Oh, I am loved. Oh, I am accepted. Oh, you do approve of me. I can actually change. His kindness leads us to repent. Repentance just means that you had a change of heart, mind, and direction in your life. 
See, God shows us kindness before we repent. And he continues to show us kindness even if we never do. Yes, he calls us out of the brokenness and mess that we've spent so much time. And it's like, hey, stop living at the dump. Come live with me. Yes, he calls us out of that into holiness. Yes, he calls us out of all that stuff into his way of life. But listen, there's a huge difference between a God who demands our perfection before coming close to us and the real God who comes close to us, wraps us in his perfection, and then offers to help us grow. That's who he is. Yeah, but what if I don't change? Or what if I don't grow? Or what if I don't change or grow fast enough? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. God makes this promise, and it's a callback all the way, almost as far back as you can go from the beginning. I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. See, this is who he is. It's who he's always been. Just because you were told or treated or made to feel like you were unlovable doesn't mean that you are. Because God, the one who creates you, the one who created you, the one who invited you to be his friend, he'll never fail you. He'll never abandon you. And so you can actually begin to journey from this scattered, shame-filled attachment and relationship that you have with him to a more accurate, healthy, secure relationship with the God who's your friend. Like the other attachment styles, it's actually gonna take some practice and probably some repetition on your part so that you, not so that you prove to yourself that you're worthy of that or prove to God, but so that you can begin to change the way that your brain is wired and you're processing what he's saying to you. See, it's going to take adopting practices that reinforce that real closeness with God is really just the real you being seen and loved and liked just as you are right now. Not some future you, not some better you, as you are right now. Because if you can actually begin to wrap your heart around that, then we can stop striving endlessly to make ourselves good enough for his love. So let me give you a, a few kind of practical things, places to start. And then we're going to end today a little bit differently. We're going to celebrate communion. The first is this, meditate on scriptures that frame God as a close friend who chose you and likes you. And there's lots of them. I gave you some of them today. To do number two, maybe begin a list of things that delights God about you. Ooh, Talk about uncomfortable activity for somebody who is shame-filled. If you struggle with what that might be, just find some people who love you close to you. They'll be able to rattle off a handful of things that God delights in about you. Number three, make some time to delight in. Play, laugh, joke, dance, be silly with other people. That doesn't sound spiritual. Number four, do something weekly just for the sheer joy of it. Not so you learn something or accomplish something or achieve something, but just because you enjoyed it, because you're allowed to enjoy your life. It actually honors God that you enjoy the life he gave to you. Now, again, I know how some of those sound, some of them not very spiritual and maybe even kind of ridiculous. But if this is your attachment style, experiencing, sitting in, 
giving away delight is the thing that you need to do most often to begin to shift that because delight is the antidote to shame. Finally, let me tell you what I think is probably the most profound and beautiful part, at least to me, about Moses' story. Right in the middle of all of it, in the middle of all the contradictions, in the middle of all the push-pull, in the middle of the extreme back and forth between he and God, in Exodus chapter 33, verse 11, it says this. It says that the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Yeah, of course he loved him, but he also liked him. God found an erratic, shame-filled orphan who didn't know where he belonged, murdered a guy who didn't seem to trust anything or anyone, including and maybe especially himself, and through the chaos of all of that, pulled him close and made him his friend. The beautiful part about that is that is his heart for you and me. That's his heart for you and me. So 